0: joining us on the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. The significant historical role of the Ivy League and the relevance of showing Division I how athletics can operate is an important topic and one that I'm glad to bring to the podcast today. Our guest is Jeff Orleans, who for 25 years was the conference commissioner for the Ivy League, now retired. He's an attorney by training and an expert in higher education law. I'll let the New York Times tell us a little bit more upon his retirement. In the mid-1980s, the Ivy League was going nowhere fast. The days of leather helmets and Rose Bowl glory were long gone, and the league, which began formal play only in 1956, seemed headed for irrelevance. Ivy football was dropped into Division 1 AA, now known as the FCS, in 1981, were beginning to compete for league championships, and the league's central office had no specific function the presidents of the eight universities who had been running the conference by committee outside of their regular duties, decided the league needed an executive director. So in 1984, the presidents hired Jeff Orleans, a bow-tied lawyer whose experience in sports amounted to little more than cheering for his Yale Bulldogs, the Yankees, and really, really, really hating the Brooklyn Dodgers. In a resounding display of support, the presidents provided Orleans with a part-time secretary and an electric typewriter. Orleans said, we had to build the conference literally from scratch. I started by ordering a second typewriter. Indeed, some ways the Ivy League has led college athletics throughout many decades. They have been at the forefront with women athletes who were competing for Ivy League titles in 10 sports by the early 1980s and other opportunities were continually on the rise. But as you learn from our conversation, Jeff has been more involved in the arc of college sports than almost anybody in the last 30 years. And I started the interview by asking about the Ivy League's history. Talk a little about the role that Ivy League athletics has played over the history of the NCAA and the different space it has taken up.
1: Well, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, Karen, because there's a long history. I and mean, the, the Ivies helped invent intercollegiate athletics. Um, there were Ivy schools in the room with with Teddy Roosevelt when he leaned on them to begin uh, the NCA, And of course, uh, interestingly enough, that was about violence and injury in football. So um, uh, some issues stay with us uh, forever. Um, the the Ivies I think were were not very active in the NCA up until uh the 80s uh, especially as their uh, football uh moved away from what became you know big time what is today uh, CFP football St- starting in the 80s we became much more active for for two reasons i think one was uh, there were Ivy presidents who were involved in the ACE push in the 80s to uh, bring about presidential governance within the NCA, and when i became the first full-time executive director in, in 1984 one of my uh, goals and one of the things the Ivy presidents asked me to do was to be uh, active to try and uh, uh, advance our values where that was appropriate to to try and uh, reach out to other conferences so that people had a better understanding of who we were and, and to to just try and be good citizens in the world of, of intercollegiate athletics, and I think we've um, we've done that uh, both in my time and in my successors. In Robin Harris's time, we've had uh, uh, lots of, of Ivy folks who are um, active on sport committees. Uh, c- the current chair of the Division One Management Council is uh, Grace Calhoun, who's the athletic director at Penn, and the current uh, Division One Um, Student-Athlete Advisory Council representative to the Division I board is an Ivy athlete. can't remember her name, but uh, so we have both, uh, two Ivy representatives coincidentally in the Division I board of directors this week. And, And I think, I know it's been good for us, it's been good for our presidents and our athletic directors to be part of that larger community and to understand the issues that affect everyone else in Division I. And I think we've been good soldiers. We've chaired sport committees. We've helped organize championships. Um, Carolyn Campbell mcgovern in my office and now in Robin's office, helped begin both the rowing and the women's uh, and the ice hockey championships uh, in Division I in women's athletics. And I think we've uh, also been able to be a voice uh, for the values that we're trying to to promote uh, and to uh, help people understand ways to do those things in a Division I context.
0: Right. And for those who don't know, just briefly explain to them what the role of football is in the Ivy League and then what the roles are of the other sports in the Ivy League.
1: A great question. Football was what brought the Ivy League together in the late 40s, first as a kind of loose scheduling arrangement, uh, then as a as a firmer scheduling arrangement. And uh, the, the the core of that agreement was that there would not be athletic financial aid, the idea that you would treat uh, athletes for financial aid purposes uh, just the way any other students were treated. In the um, early 50s, when uh, football began to grow, when television was invented and television contracts were just beginning, in fact, Penn had, I think, one of the first television contracts, the Ivy presidents uh, decided that they wanted to take a, a, a different role for Ivy football than what they saw among other major colleges and universities. And so they uh, uh, created an all sport league uh, with an agreement in 54 that began competition in 56. Uh, and that and said, again, there'd be no grants in aid and there'd be no uh, postseason competition, uh, in, at least in football, and uh, nominally in other sports. Over time, that quickly became that there'd be postseason competition in NCAA competition. Uh, At the time, there was no postseason NCAA football at any level, and so uh, our football continues not to be part of the FCS championship uh, and and to have a shorter schedule, and the rest of our sports, uh, although we have, in some respect, shorter schedules and less practice time than other sports, do compete uh, in NCAA championships and uh, compete quite successfully. I think the Ivies are somewhere around... um, the sixth or seventh or eighth most competitive conference under the Learfield Cup point system in Division I.
0: You also have an interesting sport at, on some of the campuses called sprint football. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Um, sprint football has a very interesting history. It, it it's grew up, I guess, in the 30s and 40s or 50s. It was at that point called Lightweight Football, and that's what it, that's what it was intended to, to do, is to provide a football opportunity for um, uh, Ivy athletes. Uh, a number of the Ivy schools still did not enroll women at that point. Uh, and so there were a lot of football players on, on campus, or high school football players, who wanted to keep playing, weren't uh, uh, big enough, among other things, to play at the, the Ivy varsity or junior varsity level. And so sprint football was created to provide a, an opportunity for those competitors. I think there are only two or three Ivy schools left that still play sprint football. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been commissioner, right? Um, uh, and, and it is uh, for those competitors. It's a it's a very uh, intense and meaningful experience.
0: Right. It's not an NCAA sport, but I notice that the Ivy has a schedule that goes beyond. Uh, just playing division one schools, they'll play division two schools that have sprint football, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, precisely because it's not an NCAA sport in that sense, it's kind of like um, uh, squash and men's rowing, which are not NCAA sports and where there's a lot of competition across divisions, especially in squash.
0: So tell us a little about revenue sharing and generation inside the Ivy League, institutionally and conference wide.
1: So a, uh, a principal tenant of Ivy Athletics Uh, is that it's not about the money. So uh, Ivy Athletics is paid for very substantially by institutional investment, Um, whether that's uh, presidents and financial officers allocating money to invest in athletics or uh, alumni fund and other uh, alumni groups raising money for athletics. We're not intended to be uh, dependent on outside revenue. And, And that relates in part to Uh, not wanting to do what, you know, today would be called revenue scheduling, Uh, you know, basketball games on Wednesday nights across country, uh, football games on Thursday nights, Um, uh, more travel and and more scheduling than we would want. Uh, And it's partly uh, a sense that we don't want revenue opportunities from the outside to come to favor one school or schools over others. So for example, um, uh, if the Harvard-Yale game were the were bid out, not as part of the Ivy football package, but as part of uh, independently, and it produced more revenue than say the Penn-Princeton game, we would not want that revenue flowing just to Harvard and Yale and, and advantaging them in that way. And so the money that comes to the Ivy League is uh, some of it is is television revenue, not very much, I don't think. The principal revenue comes from the basket, the NCAA basketball fund, and that money is divided uh, equally. I think there may be, I think there's a share for the conference office to help defray uh, conference expenses and keep the the dues down, and the rest of it, as I understand it, is divided uh, equally, precisely so it? that you know athletic success does not become coupled with revenue, and then. Uh, and that doesn't ratchet up the goal of athletic success in a different way.
0: That makes, that makes uh, sense. How about things like uh, institutional ticket sales, sponsorships that are made by the institutions? Is that shared revel- across the conference? No, it's not.
1: Institutional okay. money is, is institutional okay. money. And um, uh, it's an important part of every institution's uh, revenue stream. But obviously, we're playing in a different way than uh, FBS football, and although our basketballs has been very successful, both men's and women's, in in recent years, as for most division, many Division one schools, it's not a huge revenue generator.
0: And how about things like coaches' salaries, which seem to be so tied into the marketplace that the broader FCS, certainly not FBS, but FCS marketplace, how how does the Ivy compete in that space?
1: Well, uh, you know, I think we compete well i don't know anything about uh, individual school salaries or sure. school matters and and I, I don't, we didn't uh, talk about them when i was commissioner i doubt that people talk about them very much today w- what i have seen is that uh, we're able to attract good coaches i think in part because we have uh, good athletes and good students and a good environment um, it's a good place to learn to coach it's uh, in, in many sports Being a successful Ivy coach gives you the opportunity either to stay uh, and and make a career at one or two schools or to move into the rest of Division I. So I think our schools are viewed as a good place to become a a coach, uh, become a head coach. And uh, I think uh, our athletes are viewed as as good young men and women to coach. And the communities are viewed as good communities if you're um, you're wanting to settle, if you're wanting to raise a family, as as good places to, to live.
0: Right, right. So we're
1: fortunate in having a lot of long-time coaches, and we're fortunate in having a lot of great coaches who get rated um, uh, at salaries that we're just not going to be able to pay, and and more power to them.
0: Yep, yep. That's what happens at a lot of the, quote-unquote, bid-major conferences, you know, if you will. So shifting, let's talk a little bit about presidential board oversight and the kinds of decisions and discussions you would typically have at a typical meeting, how often do you meet, what would your agenda look like, that type of thing.
1: Presidents meet twice a year. Uh, when I was commissioner, for most of the time I was commissioner, uh, the NCA meeting in uh, in January, especially it was one once it was still one school one vote. And so our nine votes really mattered, and we would spend a lot of time at the fall meeting talking about NCA legislation. Uh, I know it, there's still a lot of NCA discussion, especially around. These big issues like name, image, likeness, but but the ID president's focus really is on on governing and leading the league. This is a presidentially governed league, and uh, the underlying context, the admission structure, the um, limits on practice and season length, the way uh, the athlete experience those are are that's bottom up in the sense that we rely on coaches and students to to have views and to make those views known, but it's top down in the sense that uh, the presidents ultimately make those rules and and those decisions. Uh, And and, um, again, I haven't been executive director for a decade, so I don't know how much detail they get into in these days, but uh, I can remember uh, conversations about um, how many spring practices we would have and how many spring games we would have in fall sports, uh, which is pretty granular stuff. And, and the, the presidents felt, I think rightly so, that showing that they cared and showing that, that they would pay attention to this detail would, would set a tone for the athletic directors and the Dean's Committee, uh, which would have them be careful in, in sending proposals up. And I think we've got a system now in which there's a shared sense of what's appropriate and, and um, uh, a sense in which the athletic directors take on that responsibility themselves in terms of uh, trying to make the limits work in the, in the best possible way so I think it's 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 presently and it was for most of the time I was there a very healthy uh, relationship there's an obvious kind of push pull in one sense, but I think it's a very good relationship and and certainly the ads and coaches and administrators who uh, have the longest tenures and are most comfortable in the IB system and have adopted those values as their own.
0: Right, right. One of the th- the values that certainly strikes me as being unique amongst the conference is the missed class schedules and how how infrequently students miss classes uh, because of the structure of this. Can you talk uh, tell us a little bit about how that came to be and whether that was presidentially driven?
1: Well, it, it actually, I inherited it. So okay. it came to be long before my time. But but the, the, the basic principle, as you suggested, is that we want to minimize missed class time. One way to do that is to play league games as much as possible um, in, in, in the winter sports, in basketball and hockey. Play those league games um, on the weekends uh, rather than, as, as many conferences do, to have a, a midweek uh, conference game. And that allows you to structure your your uh, midweek competition so they involve uh, minimal travel or at least as as small amount of travel as you can have and then we use what's called a travel partner concept in which um, we'll play basketball games friday and saturday night Um, uh, so uh, uh, you you might have um, uh, penn and princeton traveling together and they would play one would play at dartmouth and one would play at harvard and then Uh, they'd reverse that the next night and so there's a minimal travel between the road games the same for Dartmouth and Harvard when they come back down Uh, and those are both on the weekend and so um, it's an intense weekend that's for sure but it clears out space uh, during the week and um, we have rules for example about um, which Saturday football games can be Friday night overnights for the team Mm-hmm. rather than uh, just saying, well, if you're playing football on Saturday, you're the away team, you can automatically travel on a Friday night. Again, designed to minimize missed class time. And w- one of the other things these uh, approaches do, as as we've realized over time, is they save some money.
0: Yeah, And yeah. we have
1: very broad programs. We try and provide very broad athletic opportunities. Uh, and where you can con- control a cost like that without harming the student experience or the athletic experience, that's a good thing to do.
0: One thing that's that's really been a trend, at least in the last 10 years, is not to play back-to-back games at the big-time schools. They want lots of rest and recovery. So it strikes me that the Ivy League is saying, you know what, we have to put this in perspective with the, with their, of the context of the students being in college and that we don't have but seven days in a week. So you've said, you know, it's not... It's not. It's not that it's not important. Rest and recovery, but we believe that the return to the classroom is equally, if not more important. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's a really important uh, dilemma because rest and recovery obviously uh, m- matter, and um, uh, sport is just more intense all the time than it was before. So uh, you know, our sports medicine and trainer departments pay a lot of attention to rest and recovery. Uh, I- I think it's common in, in uh, basketball for the, the day off to be uh, Sunday, uh, the, the mandated day off to be Sunday. We also have uh, an Ivy rule that requires, uh, I think it, the total when I was commissioned was a total of 49 days off um, uh, during the season. Uh, so that's more than the NCAA weekly day off. Right. And it's designed to give people rest and recovery. It's designed to give them time when they really have, uh, can focus on their academic obligations, on the rehab if they need to. Um, But I know from the conversations uh, that I had with athletic medicine uh, folks and and trainers that that uh, wanting to make sure that that there is adequate rest and recovery, wanting to make sure that the decisions about returning to play are medical decisions and not competitive decisions uh, is important.
0: Yeah. And it really, it really hits home around the end of the semester and finals week. So how do you, how do you all manage finals, uh, practices and competitions?
1: Uh, uh, we don't have, uh, competition during exams. Okay. Um, I think that the rules may still provide that we don't have uh, practice during formal practice, uh, during exams, I'm not sure about reading week. Um, Actually, next year for the first time, all eight schools will have December exams rather than January exams. Okay. And that will uh, make it a little easier to, to spread out scheduling in January and take a little pressure off uh, some of the December scheduling. But we're, we're very clear that uh, if you're in exams, you should be in exams. So you can concentrate on your exams um, and so that you're not, uh, uh, not only taking the time out for practice, but you're not, uh, putting your energy and and accumulating that fatigue from from a practice while you're in exams.
0: So in NCAA Division I, the typical team sport athlete could practice up to 22 weeks a year. And if an academic calendar is 30 weeks, that means a, a, a player, a lacrosse player at Duke could practice 22 weeks a year with their team. What does that look like in the Ivy League, as far as let's say a sport like lacrosse?
1: You know, I would need to go back and look at what our current rules provide, but uh, we try to uh, we try to start uh, uh, practice fall practice for the spring sports later, and uh, spring practice for the fall sports later, uh, and importantly, we. Uh, limit the number of second season games. So fall across spring soccer, um, that limits, uh, not the practices aren't intense, but it limits intensity in a certain way and it limits, um, uh, travel and, and we restrict the number of uh, practices. So there, uh, you don't have the same uh, number of practices off season. Uh, you know, again, there's a balance there that uh, our president's recognize between, um, Minimizing a practice and making sure that people are adequately prepared physically. Um, and, and so, that of course, we've looked at that especially in, in football, where um, um, we've, we've changed our football regimen to try and spread out a football practice, reduce two a days, which makes preseason practice a little longer.
0: Right.
1: But reducing the two a days and minimizing uh, contact and, and essentially eliminating tackling in practice once the season starts uh, is designed to, again, focus on that health and safety part of the athlete's experience.
0: And and that's unusual in the context of NCAA Division I football, is that correct?
1: The Audis were the first to do it. I can't take credit for that. It is an issue that arose after I left, uh, but uh, we were the first to do it. Uh, I think we're still in a a minority of schools and conferences uh, that do do that.
0: Right, right. So I mentioned to you earlier about the, uh, the Ivy's role in the AAU and, uh, and the fact that it's, an el- there are elite academic institutions. Do, does there, the role of the Ivy's in those higher education associations have anything to do with athletics or are they completely separate?
1: My sense is that they're, they're separate. Uh, I've been in, at ACA, uh, ACE and AAU and, and other uh, non-athletic higher ed meetings and Those presidents, when they get together, uh, tend not to talk about athletics. They tend to talk about athletics in the NCAA context. I'm not sure that's a good thing uh, necessarily, Uh, but uh, the the Ivy president's focus is is on their meetings and their administration, Um, and uh, the the larger institutions simply don't tend to have formal uh, attention to athletics aside Mm -hmm. from whatever goes on over breakfast. (laughs) <laughs> you know,
0: um, and And one of my, my last question to you is let's say you have a new president coming into the conference uh, for the first time first time i b president needs to be brought up to speed. What kinds of things would you bring them uh, bring them up to speed on? What kinds of things would you be wanting to be sure that they understood
1: well the the, the first thing I would did tell presidents is um, if you look at at the compliance reports from your compliance officers, you're going to see uh, uh, a fair number of minor infractions over the course of a year, because if you have a thousand athletes and 35 sports and a rule book that is thicker than the Internal Revenue Code, (laughs) you're going to have a number of inadvertent violations. Uh, And the the one I would talk about most is the 48-hour visit rule when uh, the bus is snowed out and the student has to stay on campus longer than 48 hours so she's safe. Right. So I would say, uh, especially to people coming from a, a, a major college background, y- you should not be looking at numbers of violations uh, as such as, as a bad sign. I think it probably means instead that your coaches are reporting and your compliance people are educating folks about what minor violations mean. Um, second thing I would say to them is, uh, you should, you should understand that these are institutions that treat uh, men's and women's athletics substantially equally. We have a long record of uh, women being uh, active in athletics back to um, uh, uh, before women's athletics was under the NCA, uh, AIAW governance, and we've uh, expanded over the years to have uh, very active women coaches and administrators and very successful uh women athletes and uh, i think it's important for presidents um who may come from institutions where that is not quite as clear to understand that, that that should is a value and should be a value and that if they don't see it being upheld they should be active about it um and and the third thing i would say is that it's important to continue uh the ivy presence in the NCA and to support uh whether it's the Ivy office or administrators and coaches at the campus level to support that kind of involvement, uh, because that's the way we have some influence over the rules that will affect us. But it's also the best way to present the Ivy model as a healthy and viable Division One model is for people at other institutions to get to know Ivy coaches and administrators and, and understand the way they work and understand that they too are competitive. Yeah, want to be successful.
0: And in this environment today where people are saying that the model we currently have at the highest levels is not working and it's broken, it's nice to be presented with alternative ideas that can at least be discussed as to where we go if we continue on this spiral of, um, of just outrageous spending and facilities that are built for lavish people and all kinds of things. And the IB, maybe the Ivy has some things that are really worth revisiting.
1: Well, I've I found over the years, uh, uh, the, the FBS world really is a different world, but I certainly found in the rest of, of uh, Division I uh, that, that uh, conferences and commissioners and athletic directors and presidents are trying to do just what we're trying to do. They're trying to provide the best balance between the athletic experience and, and the student experience that they can. And every conference has a different context and a different um, history. And so maybe the fourth thing I would say to a new uh, president is, um, uh, uh, are we think we have good values and we think we do a a good job. No one does a perfect job of living up to them, but we should never forget that the, the conferences and schools against which we compete are also trying to do the right thing. And, uh, Especially if a president has little athletic background, it can be tempting uh, to think a little bit, think a little more of ourselves than maybe we should. And so I think that's always been part of uh, uh, what what I've done and what my successor has done is, is trying to be very clear that we think we have a good model and that we're trying to, to be good in, in doing it, but that we don't think we're special in that sense. And, um,
0: and, and we're not,
1: in that sense, any better than our colleagues who are also trying to do the right thing in other places.
0: Right. Right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your day and, I'm and very talking glad to, to do it about, about the Ivy league and the important role that it's played, not only in college sports history, but the important role it plays today in NCAA governance and other issues.
1: I'm, I'm glad to do it. And I, I just want to repeat, having been out of the league for 10 years that uh, whatever success we're having now is due to the efforts of lots of other people rather than to me.
0: Fair fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That was Jeff Orleans, former conference commissioner with the Ivy league and currently of counsel in the law firm Hirschfeld Kramer in Princeton, New Jersey. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.